Amen. We know that's true because that's what God's Word says. We're going to read that today, actually, in Philippians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Philippians 1. Uh, We're going to be spending some time in the first 11 verses of the book of Philippians this morning. Get there here in just a moment. My, uh, our, our kids are blessed to have two sets of grandparents still here and, and loving them well. Our kids love their grandparents. And there's always different ways maybe that maybe you as a kid or maybe your own children have distinguished between grandparents. And so the way that our kids do that with the two grandpas is that one grandpa lives and works on a farm, and so he is known to our kids as Grandpa Farm, and he's actually here today. And then the other grandpa is known as Grandpa Aw. And you might wonder, why would they call the other grandpa Grandpa Aw? That's, that's the, just a sound, really. It's not really a word. And the reason is because my dad, being a pretty strong man, is also a man that you have to watch closely because he believes that tasks that should be done by more than one person can be done by him alone. Maybe some of you other guys in here are like that. We'll often catch my dad doing something like moving a mattress or a dresser or something up a staircase by himself. Like, Dad, Dad, you can't do that. Dad, don't you need some help? And he'd make some comment, usually that sounds like, oh, like that. That's just the sound that he makes, and he makes that all the time. And so our kids have started calling him Grandpa Aw. He's got this Midwest farmer work ethic kind of thing where he's just like, I can do it. This is a big task maybe, but I don't need to ask for help. I can do this on my own. The truth is, a lot of us probably have that same kind of attitude, but the truth is also that there are some tasks that are simply too large for us to take on on our own. That's the kind of task we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about uh, this because we're coming into a time uh, this fall where a lot of ministry starts up at the church. There's a lot of activity that's going to start. You can just look at that bulletin insert and see the list of all these things that are going to be happening in the life of the church. And the question that that might be good to ask is why? Why are we doing all this? Is it just because we're bored and we're looking for something to do? The answer is no. It's because our desire as a church is that God would be glorified through the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to happen, right? That God would be glorified as the gospel of Jesus Christ advances. That's what we were ultimately created for, is to glorify God. God says Himself in Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by My name, whom I created for My glory, whom I formed and made. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whatever you do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all for the glory of God. That's what we were created for. We were put here for the purpose of glorifying God. There's an old tool that's been used by many churches for for many years uh, called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And maybe some of you in your background, you came from, you had to memorize portions of that. And it's just a, a summary of a number of things that Scripture teaches, trying to answer in question and answer format What is it that Scripture teaches about all things? And so the first question in that is this. What is the chief end of man? Or another way to put that would be, what are we doing here anyway? What what is the hope? What what does God have us on this earth for? And their answer to that question is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
That's their summary of what Scripture says about the purpose of why we're here. And I think that's a pretty good summary of what Scripture says. That we are here for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And so, how do we do that? How does that relate to what we're attempting to do as a church as fall ministry time kicks off? How is it that we can magnify the weightiness of who God is and all that He's done so that we and many others will spend our lives glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever? There's a lot of ways that we can go about bringing honor and glory to God, but we're going to see one particular one or a couple in the passage that we look at today. We're going to see in this passage that God is glorified as the gospel of Jesus Christ advances bringing about radical change, changing who people are and giving them a new mission in life so that we become partners with people that maybe we're once strangers with. Realizing that this task of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no way we can just say, aw, and take care of it on our own. We can't. We don't have what it takes. And so we need to partner with others in the work of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is about. And so, we're going to be in Philippians today. We, are t- we got done with our series over the summer in Second Chronicles. We're going to be picking up things in Mark. But we're actually doing a couple of sermons just kind of standing alone. When we first moved to town, um, well, actually before we moved to town, we were here doing the candidating thing. And so we didn't really talk to our kids because we weren't sure we were moving here. So we didn't really tell them exactly what we were doing. And our son, Isaiah, was three at the time. And we were having a great time. We were staying at Bob and Carol Reekin's house and just enjoying our time here, getting to meet a lot of new people, eating dessert at everybody's house, that kind of thing. And then our son, partway through the weekend, looks at us and he goes, Hey guys, what are we doing here anyway? Like, you know what, buddy? That's a good question. Uh, He was just along for the ride. And I fear, so the series that I started preaching here, the first three sermons that I preached here were a little series called, What Are We Doing Here Anyway? Uh, looking at, so this is, a, this is a body of people that gather together weekly, but what's the purpose? What are we doing here anyway? Why do we do this? And so we talked about what it means to be a church molded by God's Word and motivated by God's glory as we make disciples throughout God's world. That's kind of how I started. And then last summer we also did a, what is baptism all about? Because it's something that we do, but what are we doing when we do baptism? We're going to be doing in a couple weeks one called, What Are We Doing Here Anyway? Some questions on communion. Communion is something we do here once a month. Come to the Lord's table and have the Lord's Supper together. What, is, what are we doing when we're doing that? Some questions about communion we'll look at in a couple weeks. But today, as fall ministry gets kicked off and the church starts getting really busy, it's good to ask, what are we doing? What are we doing here anyway? What, what, what is all this activity for? I think we're going to get some answers in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you could open up your Bible, and if you're able to, please stand as we read God's Word. There's a group of us who have been, as teachers, trying to study through the book of Philippians and doing some memorization and stuff. And so I'm going to do it from memory, just because that helps me not get so stuck up in, in, in trying to read. And so a number of us have been doing this, so um, you can check me on that. Um, but I want you to hear God's Word. I think a lot of times um, we just kind of... As we read, we just kind of read through stuff and it just becomes, but in memorizing, I'd encourage you to do this, in memorizing God's Word, it just becomes much more alive and real. It's going through your mind all the time so that you can keep it there. But God's Word in Philippians chapter 1 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to 
all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You can be seated. That's God's Word, and it is so good. It's going to tell us this morning, you can see inside your sermon outline, which is inside your bulletin, a lot of information in there today, but right here is the sermon outline. might be a helpful spot for you to take notes, and then there's an application guide for you to use throughout the week. Philippians chapter 1 tells us a lot, and we're just going to go through the first 11 verses. We're going to spend just a little time on who we are, a little time on how to pray, and a lot of time on why to pray for our gospel partners, and then a little bit of time at the end with what to pray. So, here we go. Who are we? Who we are. That's kind of what we get here in Philippians 1, 1 and 2. This is a letter, and it's a letter from Paul and Timothy who define themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy worked together a lot. See, Paul didn't have that kind of attitude that this gospel advance movement that he was a part of, this idea that his desire, his mission in life was to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ to places where it had not yet advanced. He knew he couldn't do that alone. So he had lots of partners in ministry, and Timothy was one of his closest partners. And they're writing this letter together. They call themselves servants of Christ Jesus. And then Paul, by the way, is in prison as he's doing this. And he's writing this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Saints are, are people who have trusted in Jesus. They're not people that eventually become saints after a long period of time, and then the church somehow decides that they are a saint. There's not Saints are those who have trusted in Jesus as Savior. They have been made holy because of the blood of Jesus. So they're saints. So he's writing to the whole church at one city. The whole church that's gathered together in one city called Philippi. Now Paul had been to Philippi with Timothy before. If you wanted to read about it, and I'd encourage you to do it, go back to Acts chapter 16 this week. And just read Acts 16. That gives you some background on, on Paul's interaction with the church at Philippi. And in Acts chapter 16, you would read of how Paul came there to preach the gospel. So he came and he told people about who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. To die for their sins and to be raised from the dead for their justification, right? That if they would trust in him, they would be saved. Paul comes preaching that message in a place called Philippi. And many of the people there turn from sin and trust in Jesus. God does a great work in the city of Philippi, but not everybody turns to Jesus. Paul actually gets put in prison for a while while he's there. We'll get to that later. But when people get converted, when people who don't know or love Jesus 
turn to know and love Jesus, you know what they do? They join up with the church. And if there's not a church to join up with that's preaching the same message, then they start a church. And so that's what the people in Philippi did. And now, as Paul writes this letter to them, it's been about 10 years since he was there. So he was only there for a short time. Some other people ran him out of town, so he had to leave. Um, but he was only there for a short time. Now it's probably about 10 years later, and he's back in town. Or he's not back in town. He's writing them a letter saying, I wish I was back in town, but I'm not. And in this letter, he will communicate to them a number of very important things that I think we can learn from today. The church that got started in Philippi after Paul preached the gospel was the first Christian church in, on the continent of Europe. Okay? And so that's, that's kind of their distinction. And then the church, over time, got organized. You notice that Paul says he's writing this to the saints with the overseers and deacons. Okay? They now had a structure of leadership within the church that they had formed. The church was organized, and the church was doing the work of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were concerned about not just doing that in Philippi. They wanted people in Philippi to know and love and worship Jesus. They wanted this to happen all over the world. And so they are partners in the ministry with Paul, and we'll see more about that here in just a moment. A couple of things you'll notice as you go through the book of Philippians, it's full of joy and rejoicing, and it's all about Jesus. If you'd notice, look in those first two verses. It's just a greeting. Well, look at how many times the name of Jesus shows up in two verses. Just a, a standard greeting that Paul is using, and the name of Jesus shows up three times. Three times, and just a standard greeting, it's all about Jesus. We need to be reminded of this, that even just in standard kind of things, we need to be all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. Philippians, it's all about Jesus. You might say, well, it's about Paul, or it's about Philippi, or it's about joy. Yeah, it is, but it's really about Jesus. Every book in the Bible, that's the case, right? It's really all about Jesus, even if it doesn't have his name written in it. And it tells us who we are. Paul and Timothy call themselves servants. They call the people saints. They're people brought together by Jesus for a purpose. They became a church, and their church had a a mission, that they were to be advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a little social club where people got together and enjoyed being together every once in a while. What does it look like, though, to be servants of Christ Jesus and saints of Christ Jesus who partner together? Well, that's what we're going to see in the rest of this passage. I told you the first and and the last point are going to be really pretty short, but we're going to spend most of our time on why. But let's look at that first one. The first point is this. How do we pray for our gospel partners? How do we pray for our partners in the work of the gospel? Well, verses 3 and 4 give us two clues on that. Here's how we pray for our gospel partners. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Okay? So, so Paul is coming before God regularly. Every time he remembers the people in Philippi, his desire is to thank God for them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I, I like the connection there between remembering and praying. Do, do you ever have this where just seemingly random people just pop into your mind at some point during the day like i have no idea where that came from maybe you think about them regularly maybe like i haven't even thought about them for a long time now remember paul only spent a short period of time with these people and it was 10 years ago but now he's writing this letter and he's saying listen every time i remember you i thank god for you 
that can be something that we can just do, right? That as, as a name or somebody just kind of pops into our mind, just take a quick moment and thank God for that person. Pray for them really quickly. I want to do that more often. I think that's a good example here from Paul. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then, here's another way that he prays. Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Praying for Paul is not a thing to check off on a list. It's not a drudgery. It's not a chore. Praying gives him joy. He's making his prayer with joy. That's, that's the way in which he is praying. That's how he's praying. Do we pray with joy? Sometimes it's appropriate to have joy in our prayers. Sometimes it's appropriate to feel. But, but do you ever just pray with joy? We ought to pray with joy more often. We see Paul doing that. And he's remembering these people and the partnership that he had with them in the gospel. And he's praying with joy. Verse 5, I keep using this language, partnership in the gospel. That's where we get it. Verse 5, this is kind of the second point. Why do we pray for gospel partners? Verse 5 says this, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Remember, so from the first day. The first day is when Paul shows up in the region of Philippi, and he begins to preach the gospel, and people begin to turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus. So there's this transformation that is taking place as people turn and trust in Jesus. But it hasn't all been smooth. It wasn't even all smooth while Paul was there. It was just a short-term mission trip, and it didn't totally go well. If you're evaluating how well his short-term mission trip went, if you're evaluating it based on how many people turned to trust in Jesus, it was a pretty good mission trip. If you evaluate it on, like, <laughs> how it ended, not really very well. Okay, you can again read about that in Acts chapter 16. Paul spent some time in prison while he was there, but of course the result was that the jailer got converted. He's like, well, I'm not letting that stop me. I'm going to preach the gospel to this guy. And the jailer is probably now a part of the church in Philippi. Pretty cool. Um, Paul was asked to leave, and he did. But after he left, their partnership wasn't done. That's what I love about this. Paul is saying, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, it was pretty obvious during those few days that he was in Philippi that they were partners. But he's saying, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's been like nine plus years of not seeing each other. And he's still referring to them as partners in the gospel. Paul's now in prison. He's getting threats from the outside. But both of them want to see the gospel advance. And so here's what's happening. Paul wanted to see the gospel to advance and the church to grow in Philippi. That's what Paul wanted. You know what the people in Philippi wanted? They wanted to see the gospel advance and the church grow in the rest of the world. And so they knew that they couldn't do it all from Philippi. And Paul knew he couldn't do anything in Philippi from where he was. So they recognized we're partners in the gospel. Therefore, we need to pray for each other. That's one of the most practical things that we can do for our partners in the gospel. I'm thinking they were pretty excited to get this letter. That's kind of a bonus for them. They get this letter from Paul who doesn't speak down to them. He's not like, hey, I have apostolic authority. What you got? Right? He comes before them and he says, hey, you're my partners in the gospel. He's kind of a celebrity at this point. But he doesn't act like a celebrity. He's just saying, hey, I'm with you guys in this. We're partners in the gospel. 
as I was looking at this part, I was just thinking of how grateful I am for the partnership that we get to have in the gospel right here in this church locally. Our desire is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would advance in Iowa Falls and beyond. And so our gathering together as a church is a gathering together as partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see partnership take place within this church all over the place, and it gives me great joy to see it. It gets Paul all happy, and it gets me all happy. Uh, It gets me happy to just see people serving together to make Awana and Sunday school happen. When committees and boards meet, yes, it does actually happen there. Committees and boards meet, and I get to see partnership for the purpose of the advancement of the gospel taking place as people meet together and have meetings. When people make meals for other people in the body, that's, that's part of the partnership in the gospel. I see it when life groups meet, when, when people give up their time and talent to, to help make this building a better place, to, to serve on the worship team. When, when, when Ruth Lilly gathers some people together to get people together to, to minister to people in their time of need and grief, when grief share gets started, when, when Chad and Rachel Fincham say, yes, I'll volunteer to drive up from Eldora every week and do an after-school, middle-school youth group to reach middle-school kids with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a partnership in the gospel that's taking place there, saying, listen, there's a lot that can be done, and not any one of us can do it alone. And so the high school youth group will get together every week and share a meal and study the Bible at the guy's home. So many ways in which our church, some of it's just like being nice to each other. Uh, I get comments all the time of people who come to visit and they say, man, I can't believe how friendly and welcoming your church was. That's great. That's the way that we partner together in the gospel. We're all serving some different role, but our goal in the end is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would advance growth of this church doesn't count on any one person or any one ministry. Awana isn't going to grow our church by itself. Your pastor isn't going to grow the church by himself. It's all of us partnering together in the work of the gospel. It's fun. I enjoy it. But our partnership goes beyond that. Our partnership is also a global partnership. So one thing that you'll notice about this church, if you're a part of it for any period of time, hopefully you'll notice it, if you looked at our budget, you'd notice it. About 20% of our budget goes to global missions. So as you give, we are a church who is committed to the gospel advancing throughout the nations. There's so many people globally who are lost and desperately need to hear the gospel, and they don't have as much access to it as we do here. And therefore, our church has sent out a lot of people from our own church to go forward into places like the Czech Republic, into Nigeria, France, And we want people there to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have partnership in the gospel with other people. So last week we had this meeting after church and we voted that out of the surplus that we have, we're going to, as soon as they get everything lined up, send $15,000 to our missions partners in Nigeria where a school will be constructed. They're going to purchase a couple buildings and remodel them for the orphans that they have come to serve at our church. with Mary Beth and Baya, who are missions partners in Jos, Nigeria. I want to see that happen. And so we're recognizing that the, we have a, a partnership in the gospel that's not just local, but that is global. We want to send out a couple from our own next year uh, that will go and serve globally and support them in, in all sorts of different ways. So just like 
Paul and the church at Philippi, they recognized that there was work to be done locally. And Paul was praying for them about that and partnering with them in that. And there was work to be done globally. And so they were praying for each other and partnering together that the gospel might go forth and that God might be glorified in all places. But did you notice verse 6? It's what Andrea was singing about just a bit ago. It says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Another reason that we pray for our gospel partners is we know that God's going to make it happen. Our only hope is that God's going to make it happen, right? We're praying because we know that God, who began a good work in others, is going to be the one who's going to complete it. And so, Paul prays, and so we pray. We are unable to soften someone's stone-cold heart. We can't do that, but God can. I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The good work that he's talking about bringing to completion is their salvation. It's a work that was initiated by God, and it's a work that will be sustained by God over time until the day of Christ. And hopefully we have this kind of confidence. This, this inspires us to pray more when we have this kind of confidence that God can do anything. When we know that God can do anything, and we know that God has to be the one who's at work, then we get down on our knees more often and we start praying. God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And then the last reason that we pray, and this isn't the last one, but the last one in this passage, for us to pray for each other as gospel partners Because we love each other. Did you notice that in verse 7 and 8? Paul's getting kind of gushy, it seems like. I mean, listen to the way he's talking to them. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. You're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. Listen to this. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul is talking to these partners in the gospel, and it's not people he just got together with once a week and chit-chatted about the weather for about 30 seconds and then moved on. These are a people with whom he has, or for whom he has a great and deep love. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the way that I want to love you as your pastor, that I want to, to look at you and be able to just say to you, church, I love you, and I want us to be able to look at each other and say to you, you know what, you're not just casual acquaintances that I go to this thing with every once in a while, but you are people that I love. It's why we do things like life groups, because if you don't really know people that well, it's hard to love them very well. I think their love had grown because of the hard times they had been through together. I mean, these these people had worked together, they sweat together, they washed each other's feet, they laughed together, they cried together, they shared time in jail cells together. They defended the gospel together, and through all that, they learned to love each other. So a question for you, have you experienced that? Is that what church is to you? Is church this family where, where we've labored together, we've been through hard stuff together, but whatever it is, we're doing it together. I don't think we can have the kind of love that Paul has for the church here if we don't spend time together. Listen, some of you might see church as an event. And really, if you're honest, that's what it is for you in your life. Church is an event. You talk about going to church like you would go to a movie or go to a show 
or go to a game. Like we go to church, like it is an event that we go to. And some of you talk about it that way, and some of you treat it that way. I'm grateful, so grateful that you're here, but I'm just wanting you to know it's so much more than that. If church is just a place where you get encouraged, where you know it's good for you to go, you feel better if you do it, you know it's good for the kids, there's some interesting people there, and they have free coffee. You know what? That also describes the Dale Howard Family Activity Center. It does. You know it's good for you. It feels better when you work out there. You meet some interesting people and they got free coffee. It's the same thing. So is the church more than the Dale Howard Family Activity Center? I would hope so. And so how does it become that? The church is intended to be so much more than that. Church is not an event that happens weekly. Church is a gathering of partners who are together on a mission to glorify God through the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is about. It's war. It's ugly. It's not always pretty, but it's good. So I'd encourage you, if church, this church doesn't feel like your church family, a lot of people talk about it that way, and it is. But if this church doesn't feel like your church family, just an encouragement to you to just step up. Join the church. Become a member. Serve in a ministry. Get your hands dirty. Do something uncomfortable. The church feels like the church should feel when the church is doing what the church is intended to do. I came up with that this week, and I thought it was pretty good, so I'm going to say it again. Ready? The church feels like the church should feel when the church is doing what the church is intended to do. Okay? I'm going to read to you. I I read this story a number of years ago. I'm just going to quick read a short portion of a story to you. I remember reading about this story. It's in a book called Radical that a lot of people read a number of years ago. And, uh, and, and I still remember um, this story now. And so it, it, as I was doing this, it reminded me of this. And it's a story about a ship. And maybe if you've read the book, you might remember the story too. But listen to this story. In the late 1940s, the U.S. government commissioned a man named William Francis Gibbs to work with United States Lines to construct, this is in the 1940s, an $80 million troop carrier for the Navy. The purpose was to design a ship that could speedily carry 15,000 troops during times of war. That's a lot of troops. By 1952, construction of the SS United States was complete. The ship could travel at 44 knots, that's 51 miles per hour, and she could steam 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She could outrun any other ship and travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days, The SS United States was the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world. The only catch is she never carried troops, at least not in any official capacity. The ship was put on standby once during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, but otherwise she was never used in all her capacity by the U.S. Navy. Instead, the SS United States became a luxury liner for presidents, heads of state, and a variety of other celebrities who traveled on her during her 17 years of service. As a luxury liner, she couldn't carry 15,000 people. Instead, she could house just under 2,000 passengers. Those passengers could enjoy the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel used for battle during wartime, the SS United States became a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. 
Okay, so that's the story. And here's the connection that he makes. When I think about the history of the SS United States, I wonder if she has something to teach us about the history of the church. Because the church, like the SS United States, has been designed for battle. The purpose of the church is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. Yet, we have seemed to turn the church to a, from a church troop carrier into a luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in battle for the souls of people around the world, but instead to indulge ourselves in the peaceful comforts of this world. This makes me wonder what would happen if we looked squarely in the face of a world with 4.5 billion people going to hell and 26,000 children dying every day of starvation and preventable diseases, and we decided it was time to move this ship into battle instead of sitting back on the pool deck while we wait for the staff to serve us more hors d'oeuvres. Powerful for us to think of the church in that way. And so what is the church to you? And the church will begin to feel like the church should feel when the church is doing what the church was intended to do. Church is not intended to be a luxury liner where all of our needs get met. The church is like a troop carrier, getting people ready for battle and sending them out. That we together are partners in the gospel. That we lock arms with each other and we are willing to die for the one next to us. That's what it looks like to be the church. There is a, there is a, there is a lost and dying world out there who's desperately in need of the church being the church and not getting caught up in stuff that doesn't matter really all that much. There's one final point here. Um, like I said, I'm going to spend very little time on it. It's what to pray for gospel partners. Most of the application of this will be getting together on Wednesday night. I strongly encourage you, if you're available on Wednesday night, to come at 6.30 as we engage in war. One of the the primary spots for battle is to just come before God together in prayer. And we will wage war in that way. We're going to have lists of here's all the ministries, here's all the things going on in the church, here's the people leading them, we're just going to pray. We're going to pray for our gospel partners. And I don't know about you, but as you pray, do you sometimes kind of struggle with prayer? I, I do. When I'm trying to pray on my own, if I close my eyes and start to talk silently, within seconds my mind wanders away to something totally different. It's so hard for me to pray in that way. So one thing that I've been growing in is just opening up God's Word and using God's Word to help guide me in prayer. You can do that with pretty much any passage, and that's so helpful for me. And especially verses 9 through 11 here, that's exactly what they're for. This is Paul's prayer. Paul is writing out, here's how I'm praying for my partners in the gospel. So if we want to pray for people in our church, we want to pray for our global missions partners, verses 9 through 11 are a great guide. And so so let's just do that. That's kind of how I want to close. I want to close by us praying Verses 9 through 11. It's kind of an example, so you're seeing how I'm going to do this. But verses 9 to 11, they give us the content of the prayer and the goal of the prayer. The goal is that the church might approve what is excellent, be filled with the fruit of righteousness, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And the goal is that dependent on Jesus, God will be glorified through the church. To the glory and praise of God is how it ends. But I'm just going to close by making this my prayer for you. As your pastor, uh, you as the church, this is what I want to pray for you. And this is what we ought to pray for one another. And so I'm going to close in this way.
God, it is my prayer, just as it was Paul's prayer. It is my prayer that the love of this church may abound more and more. That we might grow and abound in love. We've been called a welcoming and friendly kind of people, but God, we want to be known as a loving people. We want people that become a part of our church to know that we love each other, that we want to be committed to each other, that we want to make sacrifices for each other. God, we want our church, we want love in our church to abound more and more. But not just a mushy-gushy kind of love, but a love that's based on an increase also in knowledge. God, we pray that, that our knowledge might increase as a church, that we might know each other better, that we might, I pray for our life groups that are coming up, that, that we would, that people are maybe on the edge trying to decide whether they should be involved or not, or maybe they've already made a decision they don't want to. God, maybe would you come and change their minds that, that they might commit themselves to this, this discipline of being together as the church, whether they're college students or senior adults or, or whatever. We, we want the church to be together as the church. God, we want to grow in our knowledge of each other, and especially in our knowledge of you. We know that because of who you are, because of your character, we don't know hardly anything. But God, what we do know is enough, and it's enough to cause us to worship you and to give our lives to you. We want to know you more so that we might love you more and worship you more. So God, would you cause our church to grow in love and in knowledge, and also in discernment. God, we live in a world where there's so many options, so many things, maybe not even always choosing between bad and good, but choosing between fine and and better. God, would you help us to be a discerning people? Help our our, our parents to be discerning as parents. Help our, our children to be discerning as children. Help our youth to be discerning as youth. Help those that are married to be discerning in their marriages. God, we need your help. We want to become a people of love, people who know each other, people who are are gifted with great discernment. And God, our goal is that in all of this, just like your goal is, that we might approve what is excellent, not settle for what's just okay and sort of comfortable. We want to approve what is excellent. And God, we thank you for the work that you've begun in us that you will bring to completion, that one day we will be presented before Jesus pure and blameless, that all of us who have put our faith in Jesus are being made holy. We will one day be presented before him pure and blameless. And we know it's not because we are pure and blameless on our own, but because the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us through our faith in him. God, I pray that you would fill our church with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May that be our motivation, God, that, that, that you would be praised and glorified. We know that's your motivation. You act for your own glory. And you know we know that you've created us for your glory. And so God, I pray that through the ministry of this church, you would be glorified as we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that can only come through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If the worship team would come up and prepare to lead us in a closing song. God's word is good. And sometimes, sometimes it's really encouraging. And I think this passage in many ways is really encouraging, and sometimes it's also really challenging. And I think this passage is really challenging. We start to see Paul's vision for the church and the partnership that he had with Philippi, and we long for that. And we know, hey, we've got some work to do. 
But I want to encourage you too, church, we're in a good spot. I've seen these things happen little bit by little bit, and I think we've got a long way to go, and I think we're going to get there. And our hope is not just in, in getting there by next year at this time. Our hope is ultimately in the fact that one day we will be presented before Christ pure and blameless. We look forward to that day. And in the midst of, of, of darkness and, and struggle and strife, we know that God is real and He shines as a light. Um, and we want Him to do that. So let's stand together and sing a closing song.